Futures trading involves risk and is not suitable for all investors. Content provided in this segment is meant for educational purposes and is not a solicitation to buy or sell commodities. Opinions and statements of guests not affiliated with Everag are their own and do not reflect the views of Everag. The accuracy of their statements cannot be guaranteed by Everag. Hello and welcome to From the Furrow, brought to you by Everag Insights. Each week we talk with subject matter experts on news and topics affecting the grain markets. I'm your host, Britt O'Connell. Let's get started with a review of the markets. Today is Tuesday, July 18th. December 23 corn closed up 28 and a half cents at 534 and a half, with November 23 soybeans up 17 and a quarter, closing at 1395 and a quarter. Turning to our guest this week, it's our privilege to have Scott Gerlt, Chief Economist at the American Soybean Association. Thanks for joining us again today, Scott. Thanks for having me again, Britt. Scott, The USDA recently shocked the market in its planted acres report Mm -hmm. and ultimately took soybean planted acres down about 4 million acres. What kind of impacts do you see that being on the domestic and the global soybean market? Yeah, it's going to make for a lot tighter supplies, Britt. You know, the market was obviously not expecting that that large of a change for soy. and, And we saw corn acres go up at the same time in that report. And it was a fairly significant drop. And, um, you know, at the same time, we're also seeing yield pressure based off of weather. And USDA has not dropped yields at this point, but the concern is out there. And so kind of going into the WASD last week um, after the acreage report, the markets were were really expecting um, a lot tighter ending stocks. Um, So prices were pushed up quite a bit after the acreage report. But the WASD actually surprised people the other way as USDA dropped demand and not ending stocks. Uh, to the same level. So we've seen the markets continually be surprised by some of the USDA reports lately. So let's talk about that demand piece that you just mentioned, Scott. Weekly soybean export sales have been on the lower side of trade expectations here lately. What do you attribute that to? Yeah, I I attribute that largely to Brazil's record crop. Argentina's had a drought, um, and so they've had a poor crop. The U.S., we had um, lower than expected yields or below trend yields this year, but Brazil had a record. And, you know, with that, Brazil doesn't really have great infrastructure, as I'm sure a lot of your listeners know. They don't have much storage. And so they're having to sell a lot of their beans pretty much off the combine, which produces a glut of, of beans in the world. And so their prices have been very low compared to the U.S., and so it, it's given a lot of incentive um, to other countries to, to really go to South America for their beans at this point. I mean, the quality you know, hasn't been as good with their beans, but the, the prices are, are quite a bit under the rest of the world at the moment. Uh, so that's really put a damper on a lot of our exports. And also point out at the same time, you know, with lower than expected yields this year, we're kind of tight on supplies in the United States. We've had strong demand, less supply. And so it's, you know, our beans cost a little bit more at the moment until we hit the harvest this fall. Let's talk about demand a little bit more because the demand that you just alluded to was domestic demand in the form of uh, soybean crush. The EPA's new renewable fuel mandate was a bit disappointing for many in that biodiesel space. What is your assessment of the EPA's numbers? And is there still further opportunity for the biodiesel market? Yeah, Brett, that's a great question. You know, I, I started ASA almost three years ago, and I, I kind of work across the board on all the issues. And I will say I spend most of my time on biofuel issues anymore because this has been driving so much of the demand. So EPA's impact analysis that came out with that rule you're mentioning was close to 500 pages. So there's a lot of detail in there. I think the 
the first reaction of everyone in the biomass-based diesel space was disappointment. The numbers that EPA has given us for the blending obligations for the next three years are quite a bit under the potential capacity of the biofuel space. So we're all very disappointed with that. Now, as we dug into the numbers a little bit more, I don't know if they were quite as disappointing as we'd first thought. I mean, they're, they're not what we'd hoped for, not what we would like to see, and, and they are a cause for concern. But EPA did end up recognizing a lot of the potential um, feedstock availability from soybeans and other feedstocks. Um, we ASA had worked quite a bit with them in their proposal in December. They really weren't accounting for any soybean crush capacity growth, um, even though we've seen all those announcements out there. So we worked with USDA, we worked with EPA, and they, they, they are now accounting for that. They're also accounting for canola oil being used for renewable diesel, which they weren't doing before. And that's a lot of the reason they raised up those blending obligations. Now, why they didn't get to as high as, as we thought they sh- think they should, frankly, is actually has to do with the conventional category where cornstarch ethanol is is consumed. EPA is assuming over the next three years that ethanol consumption remains fairly low for the country. And so they're essentially using biomass-based diesel to backfill that. So that means that the requirements for just the biomass-based diesel or advanced categories of blending are lower than might otherwise be because EPA is assuming those fuels will, will backfill ethanol. Um, you know, all that, of course, is dependent on what really happens in that space. You know, it's, it, I don't think any of the biofuels, any of the biofuels is terribly happy about about that, how that was uh, set up. But that's the assumptions EPA use and we're having to, to live with at this point. As far as what it will do to the industry, you know, I, we're still going to see industry growth. With EPA's role, there, there is room for growth no matter what. The potential may not be fully realized that it is out there. You know, we're, we're talking close to 20 crushed plants, potential new or expanded crushed plants, you know, close to 30% increase in crush capacity if they were all built out over the next few years. And, you know, that really is for renewable diesel in this space. And so EPA's rule allows for some of those to, to continue on, especially the ones that are nearing completion. I think the ones that are that are more concerning or the ones that have um, completion dates that are further out, like 2026, you know, will those plants still be needed? Uh, we've had one plant, Cargill in Southeast Missouri, that's been put on hold definitely. You know, part of it was, you know, EPA decisions, higher construction costs, higher interest rates. But there's also an announcement your listeners may be interested in coming out at the end of this month for a new brand new crush plant, which honestly surprised me a little bit. I thought given this environment, we probably wouldn't be seeing any more announcements right now. But I think in this announcement that will be coming out, uh, it's in an area where there really isn't much crush currently. So it make, make a little more sense than some of the other ones. So, yeah, the EPA's announcement, you know, kind of sum that up is disappointing. It, it puts some stuff at risk and there's a lot less certainty than we would like to see. But soy will continue to see growth. It just may not be everything that we had originally thought. So when you look at soybean crush margins lately, they've been really healthy. Do we necessarily need a blend mandate from EPA in order to keep that market strong or to sustain it or to promote growth? That's a really good question. The short answer is is yes, in the long run. Uh, there's things that in the short run that can that'll drive it. The reason we've seen a lot of the crush margin be so healthy is we've had a lot of supply issues in international veg oils. You know, we've been talking about renewable diesel, and that has certainly helped. But we saw those crush margins really run up before we saw increased utilization of soybean oil for biofuels. So that run up was already occurring before we were even increasing any use in domestic biofuels. Um, If you think about what was going on a a couple of years ago, Indonesia 
one of the largest palm oil producers in the world, banned palm oil exports. Last year, Brazil had a drought, and so they were short on beans, which affected soybean oil prices. Canada had uh, also had weather issues, a drought um, affected canola. You know, we had the war in Ukraine that affected sunflower exports, sunflower oil exports. So we kind of just had this perfect storm around the world on veg oil prices, which really shot those margins up quite a bit. And they have come down from some of those high levels. They're still very strong. And so there are things like that that will support crush. But I think we're talking about long run growth in, in the crush sector. It is largely predicated on um, increased demand for soybean oil for biofuels. And the obligations on the, the renewable fuel standard matter because it, it frankly is more expensive to produce biomass-based diesel from these feedstocks than it is to produce petroleum-based diesel. So without those blending obligations, there's really not much incentive overall from the market. There are some state policies, but but that's nowhere near the size and total of the renewable fuel standard. The reason we, we have those policies is really for carbon intensity reduction um, and clean air standards, things that would be otherwise unpriced by the market. So, so yeah, the, the, really the answer is, yeah, in the long run, those fuels probably wouldn't be consumed at very high levels without those. So that's, that's why we've been so engaged on setting those with EPA is because a lot of the, of the growth really is contingent on where those numbers get set. So we've talked about soybean oil a lot, but what about on the protein side, soybean meal? We've got a lot of dairymen and livestock producers that we as a company work with, and they're interested to see, are we going to see softer soybean meal prices if there's more soybeans crushed and more soybean meal available domestically? Yeah, uh, I'm going to give a fairly unqualified yes um, to that answer. I mean, it's, it's a good story, right? Now, maybe, maybe the one qualification is cheaper prices than otherwise would have been. I can't guarantee that they'll be cheap overall, right? But it will help bring down prices from what we otherwise would have expected to see. You know, as we mentioned, this this growth is being driven by the soybean oil side. And historically, that had been 30, 35% of the value of the bean, with the rest being the meal side. You know, it had got up to over 50% of the value was from oil. And, and it's come down. So, it, you know, the oil side is is driving increases in meal over the next several years. And and uh, more supply means more soybean meal. And this is something else we actually worked quite a bit with EPA on because as we're talking about food price impacts of biofuels, you know, that wasn't even being accounted for. But what it, what it means for, you know, dairy producers is soybean meal prices should be cheaper than they otherwise would be. You know, it's the industry has been looking quite a bit at what, what do we, how do we consume the meal? It's, uh, you know, we talk about soybeans all the time, but soybeans are really two products, oil and meal in a fairly fixed ratio. I mean, not completely fixed, but fairly fixed. And so there's really two markets that have to balance there. So I think that will bring down soybean meal prices to increase domestic consumption. I think we'll also see um, some more exported into the world. Uh, we've already started seeing infrastructure improvements to be able to handle the meal through the Pacific Northwest meal is a little trickier to handle through the uh, facilities. It doesn't flow as easily um, and some, some other issues. So that sometimes it requires some upgrades in the facilities. But I, I think this is going to help the domestic livestock industry. I mean, we're seeing discussions about, you know, more domestic livestock going in in places like the Northern Plains that traditionally haven't had it. Um, you know, they produce a lot of beans, but they just ex- largely export it through the Pacific Northwest. But now they're adding in crushing plants and they can potentially crush half their beans. And so they're going to have domestic meal and so, you know, they're looking at, okay, hey, can we bring in these livestock sectors into our area to be able to utilize that meal so we don't have to just export it all? So I, I think it's a great story for ag as a whole. I mean, I think that the row crop producers 
are being helped by this. And I think the livestock producers are being helped by this. So it's it's a pretty good situation overall for um, a lot of us in the ag sector. Yeah, it definitely is one of those high tides rise all ships scenarios. And really it does. It benefits the entire production ag value chain. And it's an exciting I'll call it a new, right? I'll call it a new demand or renewed demand um, because we've got this renewed energy and renewed use for uh, the soybean crush market and the soybean oil specifically. So definitely he's got a great story to tell. Uh, One last question as we wrap up, Scott, we are moving into the time of year where everybody starts talking about soybeans and how the weather could potentially impact that key reproductive stage in soybeans. As you assess the situation, talk with producers across the country, what's the sentiment, Scott? How do things look out there? What I'm hearing is really patchy. You know, as you talk to some farmers and, and they're like, hey, man, we just got rain and we're great, but you go 10 miles from me and my neighbor's field looks horrible. So I, I've heard very, very patchy um, overall. And and of course, there's there's regions where it's just all, all bad, like you know, a lot of Kansas right now. I think we have been a little bit early to fully make beans yet, and that's why we didn't see USDA pull down those yields uh, in the July WASDI. But I think I think there is a lot of concern overall. If conditions don't improve significantly, I think we could see those yield numbers come down. You know, like certain certain areas I think will have lower yields. Certain other areas will just see a lot of inconsistency. You know, very local, and it may not even show up once you start averaging up the numbers to larger areas. But I, I think at the moment, you know, look like Illinois, Missouri, some of those kind of Midwestern states, um, I think it's just, it's been very inconsistent on on the rain. So I'm, I'm hopeful we, we get a little more consistent rain, but not too much, no more derechos or things like that. <laughs> then we can come off with a, a good crop here in the end. Um, because the, the demand, I think, is there um, overall, especially increased crush demand. You know, there could be a little bit slower exports to start the season with Brazil's large crop and Mississippi River issues. But I think the demand's there, so um, it would be great to be able to for farmers to be able to fully take advantage of that. Scott, you you had to know this question was coming to wrap up. Are you taking the over or the under on the USDA fifty two bushel per acre national soybean average? <laughs> oh, I uh, you know if I'm forced to decide at the moment, I'm probably taking the under. Um, I'm that's not where I necessarily want to be, but you know just kind of looking at conditions, I I think I'd say at the moment uh, the snapshot we have now would probably be under. All right. Well, we won't hold you to a specific number. Scott, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show again. We've very much enjoyed enjoyed our conversation around the soybean market. Scott, if folks want to learn more about what is happening in the American Soybean Association, how can they do so? Yeah, uh, soygrowers.org is our website. We have a lot of great information. Uh, we have a section called Economist Angles. Well, I'll put out a, a piece about once a month kind of going through some of the issues. So people are welcome to go over there and sign up for our newsletter and read those articles. Excellent. Thanks again for joining us, Scott. If you've enjoyed listening to From the Furrow, feel free to like our podcast, subscribe, or share us with a friend or two. Thanks to Corey Romero, our producer, and Paige Driscoll for mixing and mastering today's production. At EverAg, we partner with every corner of the agriculture industry, from dairy to livestock, crops, and agribusiness, to deliver intelligent supply chain and risk management solutions. We are EverAg, everything agriculture. Learn more at www.ever.ag/everything.